Well, good afternoon. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence Government Schools, and we're here every Saturday without fail uh, to promote and to defend public education. And this afternoon, uh, we won't be talking as much as we usually do about funding. We'll be talking about the situation that our students find themselves in flooded areas. And we'll take you to uh, over to America. And we'll also take you up to New South Wales, where the teachers are very um, militant because they're dealing with uh, Mr. Perrottet, of course. Uh, he, he's, uh, he knows that he's got problems with keeping teachers in his schools, and yet uh, he, he behaves as if uh, problems don't exist. But um, the teachers themselves have been rallying and uh, picking up a stick generally. So without much more ado, let's get on with the program, shall we? And uh, we've got a very interesting article about special consideration derived at our schools for BCE students who've been affected by flooding. And uh, Oliver's going to tell us about this. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. This is an article by Tamara Clark and Shannon Schubert. Special consideration derived ATAR scores for BCE students affected by flooding. VCU student Will Jerling was just starting to get used to things returning to normal at school when the floods hit his hometown of Shepparton. Key points, dozens of Victorian schools are closed due to flooding as exams loom. Some students are studying without access to teachers, Wi-Fi, books, fresh food, or other important supplies. And they're concerned about the impacts on their ATARs and university entry. Now he is trying to prepare for his all important year 12 exams next week while floodwaters lap at the door. Shepparton Christian College is closed. The school is flooded and the roads between the campus and students' homes are totally underwater, leaving many families with no way to leave their homes, let alone get children to school. Will is trying hard to study from home in preparation for his exams, but said some of his classmates had totally given up. It's very depressing. I just want to move to Melbourne next year to university and this just adds a whole layer of challenge, he said. Will said several of his classmates were stuck at home with no access to Wi-Fi, school reading or work material, fresh food or supplies. On Tuesday, the Victorian government announced that a derived ATAR score would be used for students who had been impacted by flooding in Northern Victoria. Students eligible for derived examination results will have their final ATAR calculated based on earlier test results. Premier Daniel Andrews said the government will work with schools to identify students to ensure they are not disadvantaged. Obviously, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly difficult for teachers who can't be home and they can't remote learn either because teachers are being flood affected as well, he said. It means your results will reflect the level of achievement, hard work and skill and not these challenges that you are facing right now, Premier Andrews said. Evacuated a week out from exams. Echuca student Greer Thompson has been displaced and separated from her mum as her house is damaged by flood water. The house isn't okay. There's a meter of water. We probably won't be back until at least after Christmas, she said. She said while study had not been a priority over the past week, she was now stressed about her exams. I haven't studied in a week and my final exams are in two weeks, she said. I've sat down to study and I just stare blankly at the screen. There's always the sound of sirens in the distance. It honestly feels a bit apocalyptic. Greer attends St. Joseph's College in Echuca, 
a town that is currently building a two-kilometer levee out of sandbags to try and protect itself from the Murray River. The English exam is supposed to be on the 26th of October, and my school is going to be underwater by then, she said. Textbooks at flooded school. Will said he and his classmates were just thinking about their basic needs and were unable to focus on exam preparation. He was worried he and the other regional students affected by flooding would be at a disadvantage compared to students in Melbourne and other areas who were able to attend school and get help from their teachers. I actually don't have my textbooks because they're at school, because we didn't know it was going to flood when we came home, he said. I'm able to use internet when the power is on, but when there's no internet, I can't rely on that. Will needs an ATAR of 70 to get into RMIT's Bachelor of Business in Melbourne. He said that he had been performing well at year, but now was not sure whether he would get the results he needed. It's going to have a significant impact on my class's exam results, he said. Flashbacks of COVID lockdown. Will said the flooding and effect on his studies felt like a flashback to Victoria's COVID lockdowns. It definitely shows a lot of resemblance to when we'd be at school and a teacher would come into the classroom and announce that we're going back into lockdown again, he said. It's hard to surprise us at this point. It feels that it's just normal life to be given these sorts of challenges. Uh, if you're a VCE student and you've been impacted, you can contact a dedicated hotline for support on 1-800-717-588. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, uh, the, uh, it was of interest that they didn't go to public school students who are in trouble, of course, and uh, the problem with these kind of at our scores and der derivatives um, is that the private schools can sometimes gain the system as they have done in the past. But um, our, our thoughts are with the students who are in the flood affected areas, whatever school they may be going in, I suppose, because um, it's, um, it's just very, very difficult to be a year 12 student in the regions at this exact point in time. And, of course, a lot of people are now talking about what happened back in 2009 and uh, last year with the bushfires as well. It's often the students uh, that are affected. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back. Uh, Dale has got some material for us. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or Not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, and we're here to defend and promote public education. We're also great church-state separationists, 
And we have some news here from United States uh, where the um, Americans United for Separation of Church and State have taken on the Virginia Department of Education. They're concerned that um, there is discrimination against certain kinds of children on their sexual, on the basis of their sexual orientation. But those of us who uh, believe in public education, of course, believe that this is irrelevant. Uh, public education is open to all children. That's what makes it public. It is publicly accessible. But um, over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, I've got an article here from American United, written by uh, Nick Nartowitz. It's titled, Americans United to Virginia Department of Education. Religious freedom is not a right to harm trans kids. Across the country, this is in America, state legislatures have been attacking transgender and non-binary students. Last month, Virginia, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin decided, who is a Republican, decided to do so as well. Youngkin and the Virginia Department of Education released model policies that would harm transgender and non-binary kids in school. The model policies misuse the First Amendment's guarantee of religious freedom as justification to erase trans and non-binary youth from the classroom, creating a hostile and potentially dangerous school environment. Tragically, transgender and non-binary youth are more than four times more likely to attempt suicide than their cisgender peers. But when transgender and non-binary youth have adults and peers accept their gender identity, it's associated with significantly lower odds of attempting suicide. So it was good news when, in 2020, the Virginia legislature passed a law to create a new model policy for public school districts to maintain a safe and supportive learning environment for trans and NB kids. And in 2021, the State Department of Education released model policies to do just that. Now, Youngkin wants to replace the 2021 policies, undoing that progress and causing real harm to transgender and non-binary students. Youngkin's model policies would prohibit school employees from using a student's preferred name and pronouns without parental approval and require school's officials to out students to their parents in certain situations and require schools to deny students the right to participate in sports and use bathrooms, locker, locker rooms and other facilities consistent with their gender identity. Fortunately, there has been a lot of pushback against Youngkin's plan. Uh, our allies at Equality Virginia and at and the ACLU of Virginia have been working hard to get people to submit comments opposing them. And their efforts are working. Just three days after the comment period opened, more than one hundred, more than seventeen thousand comments with oppose or opposition in the title had been submitted. Religious freedom is not a right to harm trans kids. Americans United also submitted comments opposing the model policies. We explained that the First Amendment's guarantee of religious freedom shouldn't be used to justify the policies. We also explained that the policies actually violate the First Amendment for two reasons. First, 
They function as a blanket religious exemption that would impose real harm on trans and non-binary students. But laws and policies cannot use religious beliefs to harm others, especially kids. And secondly, they would insert one religious viewpoint regarding trans and non-binary people into school policies, even though the constitution bars the government from tailoring policies to align with religious beliefs. And they call for people to submit their comments in support of protecting transgender and non-binary students. Uh, policies like Yunkin's tell transgender and non-binary students that they're not welcome in Virginia but no student should ever be made to feel unwelcome at their public school. Hopefully the Virginian Department of Education will keep that in mind and reject these model policies. So that's um, more scary stuff happening in America, but thankfully there is opposition to that. Back to you, Jean. Yes, well, thank you very much, Dale. Um, that uh, indicates that uh, their position is very similar to ours. We don't believe in having a state religion. Uh, we believe that uh, religion and state should be separated and children should not be uh, discriminated against on the basis of peculiar uh, doctrinal beliefs. We'll have a bit of a break and a bit of music too. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, and we hope that you enjoyed Laudate Dominum as sung by Scholar Cantorum. And um, we're now going up to New South Wales, and Kim has got some news from the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Over to you, Kim. Thank you, Jean. Uh, this article is titled New South Wales Strike Rally Outside the Office of TAFE Managing Director's Ultimo Office, and it was written November 2nd this year. Federation members from metropolitan, regional and rural TAFE colleges have escalated the protected industrial action in their campaign to secure a new enterprise bargaining agreement. Federation members will protest outside the head office of TAFE New South Wales in Mary Ann Street Park, Ultimo, today being November 2nd, from 10 a.m. The escalation of industrial action has been caused by the failure of the Peritet government to negotiate a replacement TAFE Teachers Enterprise Agreement. New South Wales Teachers Federation President Angelo Gavrilata said delivering a real wage cut to TAFE teachers would worsen the workload and attractiveness of the TAFE sector as a career option. Over the last 10 years, state government policies have deliberately run down TAFE contributing to the skills crisis in New South Wales, he said. In 2012, TAFE New South Wales employed more than 17,000 teachers and related education employees. In 2022, that number has declined to just 8,197. Removal of support staff has resulted in TAFE teacher administrative workload increasing. This has led to, a, to many leaving the profession. TAFE teacher salaries haven't kept pace with the cost of living. With inflation sitting at more than 6% and growing, the government's pay offer to the TAFE sector represents a pay cut. TAFE teachers rejected the Peritech government. Insulting enterprise agreements offer in August this year and a demand negotiations on increased permanency, sustainable workloads and fair and just salary increases. Federation TAFE members have been left with no alternative other than to take action. Back to you, Jane. Well, thank you, Kim. But uh, we're now going to go back to Dale, who's got some interesting information about the uh, teachers' reaction to the federal budget. Over to you, Dale. Now, I've got a bit of a response from a few weeks ago. Uh, I've got an AEU response to the federal budget that was released a few weeks ago. And they say they want to give us a brief update on the Albanese Labor government's first budget, which was delivered uh, Tuesday a few weeks ago, and what it means for TAFE. The budget included 480,000 fee-free TAFE and vocational education places. $550 million this year as part of the 12-month interim national skills agreement, including 180,000 fee-free TAFE and vocational education places in 2023 in areas of high skills need and for targeted priority groups, including First Nations people with funding matched by states and territories. This includes 50 million over two years from 2022 to 23 to establish a TAFE technology fund to modernise IT infrastructure, workshops, laboratories, telehealth simulators and other facilities at TAFEs across Australia. Another 336 million over three years from 2024 for continuing fee-free TAFE. The Federal Labor Government's $921 million investment in fee-free TAFE places and TAFE technology fund has laid the groundwork for TAFE to lead the nation's skills recovery over the next five years. 
these significant initiatives for TAFE were only possible because of the decades of campaigning by supporters of the AEU uh, and other federations around Australia. But there's more work to be done. It is essential that the government fulfil its promise to guarantee at least 70% of all government funding to TAFE. There is a lack of funds for capital improvements to TAFE campuses in this budget. The hundreds of thousands of new students that will access the new fee-free TAFE and vocational education places will require improved and expanded campuses. Many have been closed over the last decade and many need urgent upgrades. So this budget also fails to address investment in the teachers and education support staff who will be required to provide the education programs on offer. So yeah, there's a lot to uh, be desired, left to be desired in the Albanese government's first budget. Well, it's heartening that the Albanese government understands that they've got to build up the uh, TAFE sector if they're going to get skilled uh, workers, but um, where are they going to get the teachers from? They've been uh, treating them pretty badly for so long that uh, who's going to want to uh, be in this system? But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to go over to America. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8:30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, and we're going to now go to our overseas expert. Here's Jeff with news from both the USA and England. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. And it's been a tough week for, for the dogs and um, our thoughts go out to uh, all those affected by the news uh, that we've had. So, um, but we will, the fight goes on. So we will um, we'll talk now about uh, what's happening in America. And this is from the Diana Ravitch uh, blog, which we shamelessly pillage weekly because she has such a good collection of information for those dedicated to public schooling uh, from the United States. And so this is from her blog uh, from November 7th, and it's titled, Texas Public Schools Are on the Ballot. Texas Republicans, she says, have been longing to pass a voucher bill, but they've been stymied by grassroots opposition and by our friends, pastors for Texas children who believe in separation of church and state. This year, Governor Greg Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick are determined to pass voucher legislation and they have the support of wealthy white evangelical Christian nationalists. NBC News 
reported the story of the big money behind vouchers. Texas Republicans, they say, bankrolled by Christian conservative donors, are hoping to ride a wave of parental anger over the teaching of race and sexuality in schools to achieve what has long been an unattainable goal, state funding for private education. Groups committed to giving parents the option of sending their children to private schools using taxpayer dollars, sometimes known as school choice or vouchers, have given millions of dollars to Republican candidates in Texas this year, helping to win key races and pushing some establishment lawmakers further to the right on the issue. Republican Governor Greg Abbott recently pledged to make school choice a priority in the next legislative session if he wins re-election over Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke. As a result, political observers say public school funding is effectively on the ballot Tuesday. The push for private school vouchers has been funded in large part by Defend Texas Liberty, a Christian nationalist-aligned political action committee led by former far-right Republican state lawmaker and bankrolled by a pair of West Texas billionaires. The PAC has spent nearly $10 million this year largely backing candidates who support public funding for private education and attacking those who oppose it, according to an NBC News analysis of Texas Ethics Commission campaign finance reports and data compiled by the nonprofit Open Secrets. Defend Texas Liberty did not respond to messages requesting interviews with PAC leaders. Brandon Rottingus, a political scientist at the University of Houston, said big spending by groups like Defend Texas Liberty and local fights over the way schools uh, uh, and local fights over the way schools address racism, history, and LGBTQ identities have softened the ground for school privatization in Texas and nationally. These groups have been demonizing what is being taught in public schools, and that's the fastest way to erode faith that public schools work, Rottingus said. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. If people believe that it's true, then it's politically potent. Defend Texas Liberty gave $3.6 million to former state lawmaker Don Hafanes, uh, an Abbott primary challenger who ran a campaign promising to crack down on medical care for transgender children, requiring the teaching of creationism in public schools and, and give parents government money to send their children to private schools. Abbott publicly came out in support of private school vouchers two months after winning the primary with 66.5% of the vote. The PAC also spent $168,000 supporting Republican Nate Sch uh, Schatzlein, a former pastor running for a seat in the Texas House of Representatives on a campaign to give parents more freedom to decide how and where their children are educated. Schatzlein won a competitive GOP primary in the sol solidly conservative North Texas district, in part by painting his Republican opponent as an advocate for teaching leftist woke ideologies in schools. It's time to outlaw the sexualization of our children, Schatzlein wrote on his campaign website. It's time to outlaw racist ideologies that seek to divide our children, not unify them. It's time to teach our children to love America, not hate it. Defend Texas Liberty donations accounted for more than a third of Schatzlein's campaign funding he initially agreed to speak with a reporter for NBC News, but later did not return phone calls or text messages. And this fall, I mean autumn, Defend Texas Liberty spent $100,000 to put up dozens of billboards along Texas highways, including some that showed a photo of O'Rourke next to a baseless allegation about grooming children and anti-LGBTQ attack that's been popular amongst conservatives this year. 
In a statement, Laurie Leonard, a spokesman, spokesperson for O'Rourke's campaign, said, Abbott is now calling to defund public education with his voucher program that takes tax dollars out of public school classrooms across the state and sends them away to private schools. Abbott has denied that vouchers would harm public education. We can fully fund public schools while giving, also giving parents a choice about which school is right for their child, he said during a May campaign event in San Antonio. Empowering parents means giving them the choice to send their children to any public school, charter school or private school with state funding following the student. Defend Texas Liberty is led by former state Republican Jonathan Strickland, a Republican who earned a reputation as the state's most conservative lawmaker before leaving the legislature in 2021. Nearly 90% of PAC's funding this year has come from Tim Dunn and the family of Farris Wilkes, a pair of billionaire oil and fracking magnates who have expressed the view that Texas state government should be guided by biblical values and run exclusively by evangelical Christians. Combined, they've spent tens of millions of dollars over the past decade funding far-right Texas candidates and a network of non-profits and advocacy groups that push conservative policy ideas. Strickland, Wilkes and Dunn did not respond to interview requests. Um, so that's, uh, that's an interesting story coming from Texas where the right is really starting to dominate um, all sorts of education um, policy arguments. Uh, anyway, this is a Guardian article uh, from the 7th of November on uh, education by Will Hunt Hutton. And it's called, This is no country for young people. The fate of so many of our children is sealed at birth. And he says, shocking new figures reveal the ugly truth that the circumstances of early years from a baby's weight to family ties matter too much. Judge the vitality and health of a society by the way it treats its young. Every kid has a God-given talent that it can be grown into something that will allow him or her to give, to contribute, and whose exercise of it will make them feel great and enrich the rest of us. A teacher to whom I owe a lot used to say that trusting every student will have a particular and unique talent. His task was to find it and make it flower. The one thing you can say with confidence about contemporary Britain with its over-appeasing of the interests, shibboleths and prejudices of the old is while that, that spirit may exist in the top 10% who shower material and psychic gold on their young, it has an even smaller chance of expressing itself the further down one travels in our all too steep income hierarchy. At the bottom of our society, extraordinarily poor by international standards and with weakened institutions to alleviate the distress, it almost vanishes and exists only through sometimes heroic actions by dedicated families, communities and teachers in the most adverse of circumstances. We are all diminished. If there is one determinant of an individual's life chances and their wider economic and social health, it is their experience when they were young. It is their birth weight. Heavier babies fare best. What they, what they then got to eat, the strength of family ties and parenting, their access to gr great early years education, as a telling report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies on Health Inequalities released on Friday confirmed. Britain's ugly truth is that it matters too much, not only whom, to whom you are born, but the circumstances. As the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, try to design the austerity package with compassion and fairness in mind, their focus should be on how tough life is for kids 
born into households with income in the bottom 20% and how support from the quality and number of free schools meals, free school meals to the cut in the number of sure start centres by a third has been made meagre by austerity. No one deserves the lifelong impact of being born into poverty, which will inevitably be made worse by the coming two year recession and the more attrition of public services. Families try their best, but they cannot stand alone. Britain's ugly truth is that it matters too much, not only to whom you were born, but it's the circumstances. The figures are stark. The Intergenerational Foundation report uh, reports that twice as many children, 4.2 million, live in poverty compared with older people who have seen their generation's poverty levels fall by around half. Poverty means children are compelled to be fed on low, low nutrition, fatty foods. 32.1% of 11-year-olds from the most disadvantaged homes are obese, compared with 15.5% from the least deprived and are more likely to be teased and bullied at school and have low levels of self-esteem. Figures from the Fairness Foundation, full declaration, I chair the editorial board, he says, show how children from poor homes fall behind in educational attainment. 4.6 months behind in early years, 9.3 months behind at 11, and 18.1 months behind at the time of the GSEs. The disadvantage continues to university. 27% from disadvantaged homes go on to university compared with 46% from advantaged homes. This is the personification of unfairness. The just society is one where it would not matter into which circumstances you were born and brought up. No child can be said to have brought their disadvantage on themselves. Yet in Britain, the chance of birth matters far too much, particularly in a society and culture that values its old so highly and its young so little. It was criminal enough that education spending in real terms would have only recovered to 2010 levels by 2024 on the budgetary forecasts of last year's autumn set statement. Now it is almost certain that the freeze will continue and getting back to 2024 levels will take years longer. How, as a society, can we have allowed this to happen? As a baby boomer, I have vivid memories of the 11 o'clock milk break at primary school. We fell on the free milk, whatever our social background. But more than that, and what we kids half sensed, is that some authority somewhere had our health and well-being in mind. The small bottle of milk was materially and psychologically comforting. Inevitably, though, later, she is said to have regretted it. It was Margaret Thatcher who ended it. The world is constructed by political choices and values that sit behind them. Thatcher's choice was to herald decades of choices in the same idiom. Now, incomes of Britain's top 10% are five times higher than the bottom 10%. In the rest of Europe and the developed world, except the US, the average ratio is three times. The conservative story is that income inequality is the price paid for capitalist dynamism. If so, it is a poor dynamism that leaves more than 11 million people in absolute poverty after housing costs. There is no route to improving the condition of the 4 million disadvantaged kids without improving the incomes of their parents. Some improvement can be made through the welfare system, some through more effective collective bargaining, and some by going all out to build a more, more great companies that bring well-paid work. It is a poor dynamism 
that leaves more than 11 million people in absolute poverty after housing costs. Equally, no improvement in education is possible without motivated, fairly remunerated teachers. And the 2019 Tory manifesto promised starting salaries of 30,000 pounds by 2022-3, but last year pushed that increase to 2023. To maintain the offer in real terms per head, given inflation, would in any case now imply 34,000 pounds. In fact, starter salaries outside London are 28,000 pounds. Nine out of 10 schools report problems with recruitment. Money is part of the problem, but also so is the wider environment. All teachers want to do what mine did. Instead, the social problems beyond the school leech into the classroom, hungry kids, disruptive kids, distressed kids, trying to find and nurture their particular talent. In too many schools, that is a pipe dream. Instead, making sure they have proper nutrition is the main preoccupation. Sunak is said to want to launch a skills revolution. He's right, but skills come at the end of a process that starts when a child is born. If Britain is to be fair, it has to start genuinely honouring its youth from the cradle. We are very far from that. Um, and I have to say, just that, that's, that, that's a great article. I have to say, when I was a young fella, um, we used to get milk uh, delivered every, every, every day and somebody had to be milk monitor. We passed the little cartons of milk out to the kids and everybody got milk at primary school and public school system in Australia. That went, I'm, I, I don't remember when, but uh, sometime in the mid seventies. Um, yeah, it was a sad thing, but uh, it, was, it was a good, good, good while it lasted. Um, so let's look after our kids. Let's look after our public schools. Yeah, it's interesting how they mentioned that the effect of having the milk is just that sort of knowing that uh, the government at large is actually thinking about your well-being and that's in the back of your mind, you know. That makes so much sense. They cared about it. No, I, I knew kids. I went to school with kids who were from really poor backgrounds. and But we were all the same. We all got our milk. And, yeah, there was a sense that, you know, somebody was trying to make our lives better. It's a shame. It is. Because if you sort of gauge what the government thinks of those the most vulnerable um, these days, uh, by if you gauge it by what they're actually doing for public schools, you know, then you, you know you get a, a good idea of what of what they think of the most vulnerable. Is the devil take the hindmost? Yeah, the devil take the hindmost. That's yeah, unfortunately, the way of the world now. Um, instead of people helping those behind them. Or, you know, helping, giving everyone a helping hand. Okay, back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Jeff. Um, that's very interesting that um, children, just just with uh, little things, have a, a fairly good idea of what their government really thinks of them. Their government doesn't provide lovely buildings for them like the private schools do. Then that tells it all, doesn't? But. Um, we're going to have a bit of a break and come back with our good news story. And we've got two good news stories for you this week. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. 
So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm the proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, we've been hearing how um, disadvantaged and how many disadvantaged children we have, not just in Australia, but in England and all around the world. And um, there are people of goodwill who want to help children who are disadvantaged. And one of the best ways to make sure that children learn to read and write is, in fact, to teach them music. The earlier, the better. A child sings long before it speaks. Anybody who's had a baby knows this. And I've got here in front of me a very nice program. The Australian Children's Music Foundation has partnered with Polyglobal to deliver a constructive music program at one of our disadvantaged schools in Melbourne, Richmond West Primary School. The Polyglobal and ACMF music program will cultivate equal opportunity for students of Richmond West Primary by providing students of low socioeconomic families access to the necessary musical instruments and tuition as part of the school's brass band program. Polyglobal Executive Director Steve Wang said the company is proud to be able to support children and families in the local community at such an acute time. We're committed to cultivating a beautiful life in the communities we operate in and a core component in striving towards this goal is emphasised through our ongoing support of local community needs, he said. The timely launch follows six months of most primary school students in Melbourne and surrounds restricted to remote at-home learning, which experts say has significantly contributed to behavioural issues and decreased mental health in school-aged children as a result of social isolation from peers and stress from the pressure of COVID-19 on family life. The ACMF founder of the local non-profit, Don Spencer, said the music helps children develop coping strategies for any past or future adversity, increasing their resilience as they transition through adolescence and into adulthood. Playing an instrument expands a child's creativity and imagination by building positive neural pathways while strengthening self-confidence and overall self-esteem. Nearly half of all child mental health disorders begin before the age of 14, and following the difficulties of the recent socially isolated restriction period, we are proud to be able to contribute to cultivating a mentally healthy student community at Richmond West Primary School, he said. 
So uh, the principal is Tip Kennedy, and he said the students were overwhelmingly grateful. They're having a lovely time up there. And they're, they're going to receive the new musical instruments when they come back to school in term four. So um, the music program will be offered to students from grades two to six across a three-year period. And it will provide a variety of brass instruments, including tubers, euphoniums, tenor horns, baritones, and cornets. The program will also comprise of lessons for all the brass band members and the band rehearsals. And there'll be performances both within the school and outside in the broader community. And there'll be further musical opportunities throughout the year. Isn't that just a lovely story? It is. And of course, uh, I'm interested in it because my grandson, Angus, is uh, not just a great horn player, a tenor horn player in the Hyde Street Band, but he also plays the, um, the uh, uh, trumpet and the piano. So. Music is very important uh, for uh, at least uh, our family and we know how important it is and a lot of other, other parents know how important it is but often they just can't afford either the instruments or the tuition. But those little children up at, up at Richmond West are going to be given an opportunity. That's fantastic. I'd just like to add something, Jean, uh, about uh, public schools giving access to uh, music and musical instruments. I was lucky enough to have a music program at our school. I was able to choose it as an elective. This is at a state school in the 80s. And um, I played guitar with the school's, you know, just a little classical acoustic, just a nylon string. Um, my family was not at all musical, but I... Uh, I have not put the guitar down. I'm about to turn 50 and I've been playing guitar for 35 years and I love it. And it's been there, having music's been there for me. And I'm, I'm so grateful that my school not only gave me the opportunity to learn the guitar as part of the elective in music, we did a whole semester dedicated to guitar music and learning about its history, about the instrument, as well as having to write a song with at least three chords in it um but it especially coming from a, a blue collar family where music wasn't uh, deemed that important you know uh, to my my parents values were very much uh vocationally driven let's just say and um to have any kind of sort of artistic bent as a child in that environment uh it, it, you kind of get there's an attempt to stymie it almost, not intentionally or intentionally, I don't know, but um, music's been there for me and it's solely because it was there for me as a young teenager, as a young adult, and I'm so grateful to my state school and Mrs Case, my music teacher, for putting up with me. <laughs> so I can vouch that uh, state schools and uh, music programs are incredibly important and they stand students in good stead. Indeed, indeed they are. So um, now we've got our next good news story, which is our Great State School. Over to you, Dale. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program.
week's Great State School of the Week is Mildura Primary School. Mildura Primary School, uh, number 2915, is one of our four large primary schools in the Mildura Rural City Council local government area. The school currently serves a student enrolment of about 340. The school was first established in 1888. There have been additions to the buildings over the past 100 years. From the beginning of the 2012 school year, Mildura Primary combined and began operation on one site for the first time in more than 50 years, thanks largely to two BER template buildings. The new buildings consist of six classrooms, new library facilities, a half-sized gymnasium, art, music, physical education store and a canteen. They take great pride at Mildura Primary in the way the school looks and presents itself to the local community. The school is extremely fortunate to have access to substantial Mildura Rural City Council community facilities just adjacent to the school. These include a library, a hall, indoor and outdoor pools and ovals and regular use is made of these facilities throughout the year. Uh, Mildura Primary School has a firm focus on student outcomes in literacy and numeracy and is committed to preparing students for further education and life. The school provides a quality teaching program catering for the needs of the individual and has specialist teaching in phys ed, performance art and visual art, interactive whole school activities, shared specialist programs, regular whole school meetings, buddy gate activities and school news bulletin daily and contribute to a strong feeling of school unity. The school has a multicultural mix of students, including a significant Koori and Tongan Samoan uh, population. Mildura Primary School has an active commitment to sport and physical education and has teams and students competing in local competitions. Local businesses have been very supportive of individual academic achievement, school sporting teams and music groups through sponsorship and awards. The staff is focused around delivering a high expectations environment and very dedicated and highly motivated to raise the academic and social success of their students. Well, this is very interesting because the NAPLAN results are above average and well above average for all of these children, but just wait until you find out what their socioeconomic background is and what the, the teachers are really doing there. Yeah, well, they, they provide many programs to cater for the kids in the community, uh, and I think that contributes. They have a total learning centre at the school for parents to access advice and services, which I think is incredibly important. It's that whole sort of village thing, isn't it? So it takes, yeah, yeah. takes a village, you know, uh, and that program's designed to assist the, them with their children's early needs early learning needs. Uh, they're designed to give children a flying start at school, particularly in the areas of language and school readiness. Help, advice and interesting programs are run for parents with a view to enhancing the future educational opportunities for their preschool children. The school has its own bus and car, which can be used for school excursions. Overnight excursions are held for grade three, four, five and six, and students uh, as, as normal part of the school program. The school is a calm and focused environment where children are happy and highly engaged in their learning. So here's some facts and figures from ACARA. 
The school has 353 pupils at the moment and the X-year value of the school is 813, which is well, well, well below the average of 1,000. This is a disadvantaged community. There are no kids with parents in the highest income quartile, only 3% in the second highest, 11% from the third quartile, and 86% of kids come from the poorest quartile of parental income in the community. 23% of the students speak a language other than English and 38% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of disadvantaged students with dedicated principals and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $20,090, uh, which is above the Gonski School Resource Standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $1.6 from the federal government and $5.3 million from the state government, $8,750 in fees and $43,700 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have only been $300,000. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are more than just fine. They are well above the average in writing and the improvement of the students over time is greater than that of many other schools. So congratulations to the dedicated staff at this school in Milchira. You are our great state school of the week. And we do hope that the floodwaters don't get up to the school and that the children can keep learning in this wonderful environment. But um, our time is gone uh, and we thank you for listening to us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our program this week and, of course, we'll be back next week. Uh, and if you want to find out more about us, we are, have a website, www.adogs.info. And um, from Dale and Kim and Oliver and Jeff and me, it's bye for now. And we're going out with the song that we go out with every week. And, of course, it is Paul Robeson singing that classic, Joe Hill. Bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big 
as life, smiling with his eyes, says Joe what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe. You're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.